We're now in Esther chapter 3. I'll read the passage, explain it, and then we'll derive a few lessons from it. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's side bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written, just as Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people. Each province, according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Chapter 3, verse 1, after these events, after these events, the events of Vashti being deposed and then Esther being selected to replace her as queen and after Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name that there was a plot to assassinate him that plot was discovered and the two attempted assassins they were executed for their attempted assassination after these events that this is what happens here in chapter 3 after this we see that it's about a period of four or five years that has transpired from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, verse 7, it mentions that these events are happening in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. At least the casting of the lots part of it is happening in the twelfth year. We saw in chapter 2, verse 16, that it was in the seventh year of King Ahasuerus' reign that Esther was taken by King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes as some translations call him to be the queen. So some a few years have passed, four or five years have passed. Now during this period Haman is promoted and he's called here the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. This name Hamadatha it's unknown 
what this name is or from well, what lineage he is. However, from its ending, it sounds to be, it sounds like it's an Aramaic or Old Persian kind of name. And it's also, it says, the Agagite. If you recall, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, there was a, a king of Amalek called Agag. And it is likely that the term Agag was a general name, just like Pharaoh for Egypt. The Egyptian king was typically called Pharaoh. Very rarely does the Bible tell us the exact name of the Pharaoh at the time. And it may be that among the Amalekites, the name Agag was a gener general or generic name for the Amalekite kings. Just like it's likely that Achish was the name the general name for the Philistine kings because there are there were more than one in the book of Genesis and 1 Samuel um, more than one king of the Philistines and it's likely especially in Samuel that that is the case so that is probably the origin of this man there are other ideas as to what the origin is but this is likely the case that he is of the Amalekites who were supposed to be destroyed, who were supposed to be completely destroyed by Saul, and he refused to do so. Well, this one is advanced by King Ahasuerus, established in his authority over all the princes who were with him. There were seven princes, as we gather from chapter 1, there were seven princes who oversaw the kingdom, and this one, Haman, is over them. He is similar to Joseph when Joseph was the second ruler over Egypt when Pharaoh uh, appointed him to be over Egypt in the book of Genesis. This is the position that Haman has here. Verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. The king issued a command, a decree, for all the servants, all the officials, to bow down and pay homage to Haman. It says there in verse 2, Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Mordecai refused to do so. He refused to bow down nor pay homage. It is likely, and we'll speak of this later, it is likely that Mordecai refused to do this because... In the Persian theology, in Persian religion, the king and certain ones near the king could be considered gods or sons of God. This is not only in Persia, in the old Persian kingdoms, but also in other religions in the ancient past. There were kings who were considered to be gods or incarnations of gods. This is likely what's happening here. And in Persia, it would have been likely the god Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda, the old Persian god. Mordecai refused to do this. It was not a matter of civil honor or civil respect, which is carried out throughout the Bible, to give this kind of honor, to bow down to an official, an authority. But in this case, it's likely that he was refusing to do so because there was deity or divinity associated with the bowing down. Well, verse 3, The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? They confront Mordecai. They press him. They ask him directly, Why are you transgressing the king's command? The king issued a decree for this to be done, and Mordecai refused to do so. We see them in verse 4 pressing him on this matter. It's not only that they asked him once, but they pressed him. It says in verse 4, Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them. They were daily speaking to him. It doesn't tell us how many days, but apparently they were trying to persuade him and pressure him into doing what everybody else was doing. And yet Mordecai would not do so. So, Mordecai reveals why he doesn't do it. It says in verse 4, For he had told them that he was a Jew. 
for he had told them that he was a Jew, and because he was a Jew, Jews were not supposed to worship false gods. In the first uh, two of the Ten Commandments, it prohibits Jews from worshiping any other god but the Lord, and not to make an idol to worship it or to bow down to it. Can you completely cut it? Okay. Well, they mentioned this. They inform Haman about this. They wanted to see if Haman would allow Mordecai's reason reason to stand. Verse 5. Haman reacts in rage. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Mordecai's reason did not pacify Haman. It was not a justifiable reason to not give him that homage. So instead, Haman, being a a man who desired this kind of attention, and we'll see this in subsequent chapters, he was a man who desired this kind of honor and attention and praise, the, the praise of men. He did want it for his own pride. And here, his pride causes him to react with rage. He was filled with rage. Notice in verse 6, it's not enough for Haman to be enraged at Mordecai. He becomes enraged with all the people of Mordecai, all the Jews. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman is a man of wickedness, injustice. He does not know equal retribution. If it were the case that Mordecai actually did do something wrong that deserved death, then only Mordecai should have died. Not all the people of Mordecai. Yet Haman, being a wicked man, he's excessive, and he wanted to massacre all the people of Mordecai, all the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. Again, spanning from North Africa all the way into modern South Asia. He wanted to massacre all the Jews throughout the whole empire. Verse 7. He begins this process of execution. Verse 7 says, In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Here, in the first month of the year, which would have been the month of March, in other places in the Bible, this month Nisan is called Abib, such as Exodus 12, 2 and 13, verse 4. In Exodus 13, 4, it's called Abib, and in 12, 2, it's the designated first month of the year. That is the month that they departed the land of Egypt and celebrated the Passover. In this first month, now that month in, Ex, uh, in Esther 3, 7, it's called Nisan. It is the 12th year of Ahasuerus. This was likely about 473 or 474 B.C. 473 or 474 B.C. The lot is cast. The word lot here is poor. Poor is likely an old Persian word for lot. And it was cast before Haman. It was constantly cast before him in order for the lot to reveal to him and to the people which day of the year should be chosen. Superstitiously, they believed in casting lots in order to choose a day so that it would be auspicious for them, so that they would have the best luck in succeeding in their endeavor. So they keep casting lots, and then the month of Adar, the twelfth month of the year, was chosen, which would have been the following February. They're doing this in March, and the following February, that 
date was chosen. It tells us specifically in verse 13 that in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, this is when the massacre and the plunder was supposed to occur. About 11 months until that time. This is how he superstitiously chose an auspicious, beneficial month so that he might succeed in doing this evil, this uh, complete massacre. Verse 8, Then Haman said to Hashuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Notice here, he does not mention the Jews. He does not mention them by name. Perhaps he withholds that information because it is unnecessary for the king to know that just as long as he knows that they don't observe the king's laws. Whoever does not submit to the king deserves to be put to death. That is perhaps one reason. Perhaps another reason is now that Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew and Haman probably knows that Esther is a Jew, that there is some relationship between Mordecai and Esther. Perhaps he knows that, and he does not want the king to know that he also thinks that Esther ought to be put to death. This would be his way of getting what he wants without revealing too much to the king. So the proposal in verse 9, If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. He wants them all to be destroyed. He'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business. Those who do this, he'll pay money so that it's not a burden on the king's budget. It's not a burden on the king's treasury. Haman says, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. This is perhaps millions of dollars. He's giving millions of dollars. He's proposing to give millions of dollars to the king so that the king does not have to be concerned about anything in his treasury. He can do whatever he wanted and intended to do in the upcoming months and year for the empire. This pleased the king. Verse 10. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. He gave his signet ring because the signet ring was necessary to seal the deal, to seal the decree, to make sure that everyone knew that the king agreed to this new law. He gives it to Haman so that Haman might issue this decree. However, in verse 11, the king said to Haman, The silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. The king says, I don't really want or, or need the money. Perhaps he's, he's trying to show some humility in all this. Just keep the money for yourself. There's no need to give it to me. Just do whatever you want with the people. Verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written, just as Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of the, of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. It's done. It's written. It's delivered. It's informed to the satraps, to the governors, to the princes throughout the whole empire. They get it in their own script because there would have been many, many languages throughout the empire. Everyone according to their language so that they understand what the decree is. They have it in their own language. Verse 13, the contents. The letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the Jews. Spare none of them. Spare none of them, both young and old. It doesn't matter how young they are. It doesn't matter how old they are. Can you imagine? They did not do anything wrong. 
They were innocent people, and yet they would all be destroyed by this wicked decree, whether very young or very old. No mercy at all. And even women and children, even women and children, those that are usually defenseless, those who have less strength, the more vulnerable, they were even to eradicate them. In one day, that's because that was the superstitious day that Haman had determined by casting lots. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and not only to annihilate all the people, but to seize their possessions as plunder. This would be a way to increase the desire of the enemies of the Jews to carry out this decree so that they might obtain wealth by looting and plundering the, the people of the Jews throughout the empire. 14. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. They made sure that everyone was going to get ready for that day. 15. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the, de the decree was issued in Susa the capital. They were impelled and they went out. They had a system from the time of King Cyrus, a few decades before, when Cyrus, one of the earlier kings of the Persian Empire, after the Babylonians, when Cyrus was king, he made sure that there was a way for the empire to quickly receive news from the king. And this system was still in place in the time of Ahasuerus. He's impelled by the king's command. It's issued in Susa, the capital. The king and Haman sit down to drink. Haman is happy. They're going to sit down and drink and celebrate. Celebrate that they are men of power, men of luxury. They can have their will accomplished however and whenever they want. And Haman especially, he knows what he's going to get, what he desires to get. They sit down to drink. Drink wine and enjoy that. They do that while the city of Susa was in confusion. The Jews heard about it, and any friends of the Jews among the other peoples, they heard about it. They're all sorrowful. They're all in confusion. They're all grieving. We'll see in the next chapter that Mordecai and others are going to be grieving over this. They're in confusion. They know that they have only 11 more months to live, and they're helpless. Now, a few things that we can learn from this passage. The first thing that we'll notice is in verse 2. Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to Haman. We know that it's okay to bow down and give civil homage, civil respect, civil honor in the Bible. It's, it's done from the book of Genesis onward. Examples are God told Joseph that his parents and his brothers would bow down to him. A time would come when they would bow down to him. God said that. Thereby we know it's not evil in and of itself to show respect to someone in that way, to bow down. And also when his brothers did come to Egypt and they presented themselves before Joseph, they bowed down. They bowed down in Genesis chapter 42, verses 6 and 9, 43, 26, and 44, 14. They bowed down before Joseph. Another example is in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 8, King David, he bows down before Saul. David, anointed king, though not on the throne yet, Saul is still king, David bows down before Saul. David, a righteous man, bowing down before a wicked man, yet he was king, therefore he bows down before him. Also, 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 to 24, in 1 Samuel 25, Abigail bows down before David. She's presenting herself before David the king, the anointed king, and she bows down before him. 
so that she might be granted her request. And one last example of doing civil homage is 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings 1, 16 and 31, where we see that Bathsheba, the wife of David, bows down before David when she approaches him with a request for her son Solomon to be king. She bowed down before David. Now, those are examples of civil honor or respect, homage, bowing down, before an authority, especially a civil authority. However, the Bible does prohibit bowing down in this way if there is any hint of deity, if there's any hint of doing worship to a divinity, a deity, somebody who claims or thinks he is God, the Son of God, something of that nature. Examples of that. We have in Judge, Judges chapter 2, verse 12. Judges 2 and verse 12. God had warned Israel not to do this, and now he is complaining that they have done so. Judges 2, and I'll start at verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. They bowed themselves down to idols. Verse 17. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. Their idolatry, worshiping images called gods, is forbidden. We have a similar incident in Daniel chapter 3. However, in this case, in Daniel chapter 3, the three friends of Daniel, they refuse, just like Mordecai, they refuse to bow down before any deity but the Lord himself. Daniel chapter 3, you recall that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had erected an idol, a large idol, in the plain, and he commanded all the people to worship at the sound of the music, to bow down before the idol. However, it says that they refuse to do so. Daniel chapter 3, verses 5 and 15. Daniel 3, 5 and 15. I'll read at 3.15. 3.15. Now, if you are ready, Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? See there, it says, fall down and worship the image that I have made. He calls on them to do so. And he challenges them that no God is able to overcome him because He's claiming to be a God himself, a God more powerful than any God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might worship. Well, what do they say and what do they do? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O, o Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They say, they don't really need to give him an answer. They push back. And they say that their God is able to deliver them. And he says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And verse 18, but even if he does not, even if they knew, and, e and even if it so turns out that they are about to be thrown into the fire, 
they're not going to be deterred by this potential of being scorched and, and, and put to death by this consuming fire. They're not concerned about their physical bodies. They knew the truth of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. They were willing to go even to physical death if God did not spare them from that. They were not going to back off last minute as the, they approached the fire and say, oh, okay, we change our mind. They're, they weren't going to do that until the very end. Another example of refusing to do this is Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Again, an example of a subordinate disobeying the king, the command of the king. We see here a principle that when the law of God is, is called upon by the people of God to transgress the law of God, they, the people of God should refuse transgression of the law of God. The law of God is superior to any human commandment. Daniel chapter 6, we have another king, and now the enemies of Daniel conspire against him, and they want the king to issue a decree against Daniel and people like Daniel so that they are killed. Daniel chapter 6, verse 7. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. They, they say, now this would, this would pamper the pride of the king, would it not? His officials say, Let's make a decree that no one's supposed to make a petition to any god or man except you, O king. No incarnate god or no god in the heavens. No petition to anyone except you for 30 days. Otherwise be thrown into the lion's den. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Daniel knew what the decree said, yet Daniel did not bow, he did not kneel before the king, he only did so before his God, the God of heaven, the true and living God. He did it as he used to do. He refused to obey that injunction. Let's see a couple of examples in the New Testament where we ought not to give divine honor to anyone but God alone. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Peter and six other disciples, they went to the house of Cornelius to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Peter goes there. Cornelius was a Roman, a Roman centurion. He had supervision over a hundred guards or a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. And Cornelius hears the gospel. When Peter first came, though, notice what happens. Acts chapter 10, verse 25. Acts 10, 25. And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am, a, uh, am just a man. Stand up, I too am just a man. Don't bow down to me. I know what your intention is. You're not just honoring me. You think I'm a god, because he knew of Cornelius' pagan background, that he would have this propensity to worship like that. And Peter says, No, it, not, it ought not to be done. Revelation chapter 19 Revelation 19. In this book, John the Apostle receives the Word of God by the mediation of an angel. The angel was sent by Christ, and the Word of Christ was 
conveyed from the Father. God sent Christ, who sent an angel, who communicates this word to John the Apostle. Revelation 19, verse 10. And I, that is John the Apostle, I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here even John, seeing all these visions, he, he, he lost it. And he sees the angel, this marvelous angel, and he falls down to worship the angel. The angel has to remind John, you're not supposed to do this. Don't do this. Worship God. The same happens in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. In chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, the angel has to tell John again, don't do that. Don't worship me, an angel. Worship God, God alone. What should we do then? We should only give God worship. Even if it means disobeying a commandment of men, we ought to only worship God. Whatever injunctions, decrees, edicts, laws that are passed that cause us and tempt us not to worship God as God told us to worship Him, we should refuse to obey those human laws. When we refuse to obey those human laws, we're honoring God, even though it's a disobedience to the king or the magistrate, it's okay. God honors our obedience to Him over obedience to a law that transgresses His laws. Another thing to notice is in verses 3 and 4. Another lesson we can learn here in verses 3 and 4. The officials or servants of the king, they press Mordecai on why he's not obeying the king. Why he's not worshipping Haman. Why he's not doing that. They pester him or push him. It says that, that they were asking him to do this daily. This is common. While we live in the world, it's going to be true that the people of the world, and sometimes the people in the visible church, the people in the visible local church, the people who say they're Christians, they will tempt the true Christians in the church to sin against God. The people in your own group, your own visible church, or we might say in even in our denomination, or in a Christian nation, or any Christian, whoever he may be, he says, yes, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're both Christians together. Yet he might tempt you, just as the world might tempt you. There will be temptation among comrades and foreigners to do like them. We ought not to do that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10. Proverbs 1, 10. One ten, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. They don't just say, come. They keep on explaining and explaining. They, they explain the benefits of following them. The, the benefits of robbing and murdering and looting. They explain those benefits to entice the godly man. James, James chapter 4, verse 4. James 4, 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here he's telling us there's only two choices. If we are a friend of the world, if we buddy up with the world, then we are adulteresses. We have committed spiritual adultery 
if we are a friend of the world. If we have become a friend of the world, we have promoted hostility toward God. Enmity, strife, conflict, warfare against God. If we're a friend of the world, we're a foe of God. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no other way to look at it. James tells us quite clearly. And even John does. John the Apostle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. No love of the world. If there is love of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Just like James, John is telling us it's either or. It's not a little bit of, of both, or some of both, or a lot of both. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not there. And why should we love the world? Because it's passing away. And it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. What's better, to live forever or to live for the moment? Living forever. And then another lesson, our final lesson from this is taken from the last part of chapter 3. Chapter 3, 7 to 15. Haman's animosity towards the Jews. Haman's animosity toward the Jews. It's unjustified because Mordecai was submitting himself to the law of the God of heaven. It was unjustified animosity. He should not have desired to annihilate Mordecai and all the people of Mordecai. This kind of animosity remains today. We see it throughout the history of the world and it even remains today. It remains today throughout many countries. The many Muslim countries, they hate and despise Jewish people. They want to eradicate them all. They want to massacre them all. They want to blow up the nation of Israel. They want to do that to the nation of Israel and any nation that allies itself, and they don't have very many friends. The U.S. is one of their only major friends. They want to blow up any nation that allies itself with Israel and Jewish people. We have in India the Aryan Hindus who say that they are of the superior race and religion, the Aryan race and religion. They also hate the Jewish people. In fact, the Aryans and the Muslims, when Hitler was massacring them, the Aryans of India and the Muslims around the world, they supported Hitler. They endorsed Hitler. And now we, we also mention Hitler and the Nazis. The Nazis at that time and the neo-Nazis of today, some of whom live in the United States. The neo-Nazis of today, they also hate the Jewish people and want them eradicated. We see this also in the KKK, Ku Klux Klan. They also hate the Jewish people. We also see it on the other side with the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers, so-called pastor and reverend Jeremiah Wright, Barack Hussein Obama's pastor for 20 years in Chicago. These black people, Louis Farrakhan, you go on and on, all kinds of black people and organizations who supposedly represent the blacks, they spew poison against the Jewish people, white people too, anyone who's not them, but especially Jews and whites. This is going on all, all over the world and even in our own country. What then should anyone who claims to be a pastor, a minister of the, the, of the gospel, and a disciple of Christ, what should his attitude be towards the Jewish people? We know, and it's obvious from the Bible, 
that one does not go to heaven just because he's a Jew. John the Baptist, Jesus, the prophets, they always railed against the Jews for trusting in their lineage, for trusting in their temple, for trusting in their uh, access to the law of God and circumcision. They always railed against that. That's true. But when a Jew or a Gentile believes the truth of the gospel, they are in the family of God. The language, the ethnicity, the background, the lineage of the person doesn't matter. God doesn't look at it that way. He takes two groups, two tribes who are at odds with each other and bring these tribes or nations together in Christ, in one body as Christ, with Christ the head of the body. He brings them together. And Paul, a Jew, a believing Jew, he knew that and he preached that. What should our attitude be towards Jews? Romans chapter 10, verse 1. After explaining the disobedience of the Jews and God's election on how one actually does come to know Christ in chapter, chapters 8 and 9, after he's explained all that, up to this point actually in the letter, he says in verse, chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. My, prayer, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul the Apostle would have never spoken against the Jews the way a lot of the people do today with all of the animosity and vitriol against the Jewish people. He would have never spoken that way. He, he's praying like this and he has a desire like this which desire reminds us of chapter 9 verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He wishes that he could be accursed so that the nation of the people of Israel might be saved. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. We could read the whole chapter. This is instructive because this whole chapter is meant to tell us that we ought to have a right view of God's covenant and a right view of God's predestination and a right view of the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles and to keep us all humble, to keep us humble. Notice chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God's even choosing for His people to be Israelite people. Some among God's people will be Israelites. And He then says that in the time of Elijah the prophet, God spared 7,000 of the people of Israel that they might be true worshipers of God. 7,000 in the time of Elijah. Then, notice verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. For if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Even though he's an apostle of the Gentiles and he magnifies his ministry by talking about what God has done among the Gentiles, still his purpose is to save some of the Jews. Verse 14. Even Paul's purpose is to save some 
of the Jews. 15. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If they rejected Christ and that propelled the gospel to go to the Gentilic world, what about when they believe in Christ? If their negative reaction to Christ brought riches to the Gentilic world, what about their acceptance of the gospel? Won't that also be a blessing to the Gentilic world? God's able to use both evil and good to help the rest of the world, to bless the rest of the world. 16. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The root is the Jewish believers. The root is the Jewish believers. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. The Gentiles are the wild olive tree, grafted into this cultivated one, the domestic one, the olive tree. And he says, don't be conceited, because if the Jews, visibly a part of this tree, can be chopped off and thrown away, who says that you, who are a part of this visible church, and you're now you're boasting, and you are conceited. You don't have the fear of God in you. Just as God did not spare the natural branches, He won't spare you either. He'll cut you off. You claim to be in the church, but He can cut you off, and you won't be a part of the church. So, have humility. Gentiles, have humility toward the Jews. Yes, we preach against their sin. We also preach against our sin. But they are savable just as Gentiles are savable. We have to preach the gospel to everyone. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. All right, it's time for a question to start us out. Uh, in Esther, uh, you, you know, you rightly are saying that this decree 